As we know, people have been stockpiling toilet paper and food over this past week. In fact, I was in the grocery store yesterday, and there were a number of aisles where there was basically nothing, sections that were uh, completely bare. And I was reading an article about this, and the article wasn't arguing for or against uh, stockpiling, but rather it was reflecting on what drives this behavior, why we do this. And this is what it said. Why are so many of us stocking up on toilet paper and hoarding food? Psychologists and public health experts say it all boils down to one emotion, powerlessness. We don't completely understand the coronavirus. We don't know where this is all going. And the best advice we are given is, wash your hands. So, we do what we can to make us feel in control. And the article argued that stockpiling is a way for us to feel somewhat in control. Now, I don't know if this psychological analysis of of buying goods and stockpiling is correct, but I do agree that we all feel a little bit powerless right now. I've lived in Middle Tennessee long enough to know that when you're uh, in the midst of a tornado warning and you're sitting in the bathroom with your three children, they've got their blankets and their bike helmets are on and they're all in the bathtub and you can hear the storm outside. As a father, you feel powerless. Or when you have this invisible disease that could be anywhere, on any surface, carried by anyone, you feel powerless. I think these last couple weeks have reminded us that we are not in absolute control of our lives. I mean, often we can go through our days and sort of ignore this fact, pretend we are in control, but we can't do that right now given what's going on. And you know, I'm struck that all this is happening during the season of Lent because as I preached on on Ash Wednesday, Lent is a time during which we are called to remember that we are not in control of our lives. To remember that we are creatures, that we are needy, and that often we are powerless, powerless in the situations we find ourselves in. And as we remember this during Lent, what we're supposed to do is is this acknowledgement is supposed to drive us back to God, to the one who is in control, and to the one who loves us. Now, our readings today, they, they speak to this, and they ask us a question, one question. When we discover that we are powerless, when we discover that we are needy, Do we have the capacity to trust God? That's the question that's in our readings. Do we have the capacity to trust God with our need? You know, in our fear, in our anxiety, do we actually believe in the reliability of God? And the readings today, they name some promises for us regarding this. But they also 
speak a word of warning to us. So let's look at the readings, and we'll start with our reading from Exodus, from the Old Testament. At this point in our reading, the Israelites, they are journeying through the wilderness. They have left Egypt. God has freed them. The scene, we're told, is a place called Repidim. We have no idea where this is. All we know is that it's in the middle of the wilderness, the desert. This is a desolate place. It's hot. It is barren. And most importantly, there is no water. So that's the context. Uh, this hot, barren place, and there is this need for water. The passage opens with the Israelites realizing this, and they're understandably concerned and worried about this need for water. And so they turn to Moses, and they say, give us water to drink. Not the most polite way to ask, but that's what they say. But Moses can't do this because he doesn't have any water. And so he says, well, well I don't have any And this really gets them upset because they realize not only that there's no water, but more than this, Moses, their their leader, he doesn't have a plan to get water. What are they going to do? And so they begin to panic. And then what happens, and this happens really quickly in the reading, the problem about water becomes a problem about God. The water problem becomes a God problem. Is God here? Is God with us? Why hasn't he given us water? Why did he bring us to a place like this? And more than asking these questions, they start demanding that Moses figures this out. Moses is the one who talks to God. Get us some water. And Moses says to them, because he's not happy with them, he says, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? And so Moses turns to God for for help, and God responds, and he says this, Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. So God hears them, and he answers their need. Therefore, God, Israel can, can answer those questions they've been asking. You know, is God here? Is God faithful? That was their, their question. And the story tells us that now they can answer it. Yeah, God is here. God is faithful. God is reliable. God said yes to our need. God is the God of yes. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, when he talks about God, he calls God the God of yes, because God is there meeting our needs, saying yes. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians. It's a great, great passage. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for in him every one of God's promises is a yes. I think that's a great way to think about God. 
that God is a God of yes. Paul says God's not, God is not a God of yes and no. He's a God of yes. And that's what this story from Exodus remembers and proclaims. It's not a story that explains how God is a God of yes. In fact, the story is, is an amazing story. It's, it's inexplicable what God does. Right? God brings water from a rock. From a rock. He brings life from death. That's what the story proclaims. As one writer puts it, he says this story teaches us that in the desert of our lives, God can answer our needs, whatever they are. That's the promise from Exodus. God is a God of yes. So, Israel remembers this story. It's an important story for them. They keep a record. They write it down. But later on, much, much later, they look back on this story and they start thinking about it again. And they remember that that God is a God of yes. But they also remember their actions with a sense of shame and embarrassment. Because they remember as they read that story that they actually didn't trust God. If they had trusted God in the desert, they wouldn't have been so anxious. They wouldn't have been so demanding, so angry. And so this shame and this embarrassment, it comes out in our psalm. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is written many years later and it's looking back on the story. And so I want to look at the psalm with you. And in fact, I want you to grab your prayer book and turn to the psalm because we actually didn't sing the whole psalm. There's four verses at the end. And these four verses are are critical to understanding the psalms. It's on page 724. I'm just going to read this to you. Psalm 95. It says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So right now they're celebrating God. Everything's good. They talk about his power now. In his hand are the caverns of the earth. And the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee and kneel before the Lord our Maker. And then they shift and they talk about the fact that God isn't just this remote God. He's their God. For for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. But then all of a sudden, and this is where we stopped, it turns negative. This is verses 8 through 11. Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness. All right, this is speaking about this story at Meribah and on that day at Massa when they tempted me. They put me to the test. That was Moses' words though they had seen my works. Forty years long, I detested that generation and said, this people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. 
So you see some, why we often don't read those verses. Um, but they're important. Because what, how the psalm ends, they're remembering the story, and they remember that they actually didn't trust God. Again, instead, in their fear, they just ran out of options, and they ended up demanding a response from God. And what the psalm tells us in these last four verses is that God doesn't like this. God doesn't want to have to prove his godness. He doesn't like to be put to the test. Those words are in the psalm and in Exodus, put to the test. He doesn't like to be a a cosmic gumball machine where he answers our needs on our terms. So we have Exodus, we have Psalm 95, and then lastly, we have our gospel reading. And here, this theme of need, God answering our need, is taken up again and actually comes to a climax. It's John 4, the Samaritan woman by the well. And notice, the story is again about water. Starts with Jesus asking for some water from a woman. But then very quickly, Jesus reverses the request. And he tells the woman, you know, you should really be asking me for water because I'm the true source of water. He says this, I'll read it to you. Everyone who drinks of this water from this well will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman, trusting in faith, not not demanding, but trusting, says, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. So this story is is proclaiming, clearly proclaiming, that Jesus does what God does. He gives water. Jesus meets our needs. Water, in all of these readings, symbolizes life. And Jesus gives this new life. And we shouldn't miss the fact of who he gives this water to, uh, this woman. I can remember sitting, this was a number of years ago, sitting in a small group at St. Paul's in Murfreesboro. There were four of us. And in the group, there was a woman. And as we were talking, it was clear she was really wrestling and struggling emotionally and spiritually. I I was sitting right next to her. And as we talked, she began to share And she said that she had been married a few times. And and what she was ensnared by was this sense of shame, deep sense of shame from these marriages. Uh, She was ashamed that these marriages, they all ended in divorces. Now, as we were talking, one person said, and, and I don't know why he said this, but he did say this. He said to her, Well, it's not like you've been divorced a ridiculous amount of times, like five or something. And that's when she started to cry uncontrollably. Because guess what? She had been divorced five times. She felt utterly defeated. And more than that, because of these divorces, she felt unlovable. She felt defective. Five men had decided to leave her. And because of that, she felt unworthy of love. 
especially unworthy of God's love. How, how could anyone love her? Now that is just like the woman who meets Jesus at the well. Remember we're told she was married five times. And the incredible news that Jesus has for her is that there's water. There's water for her. Just like there was water for the Israelites, there is water for her. There is water for all of us. The prophet Jeremiah, many, many years before Jesus, he spoke about water too. And Jeremiah, he accused the people of God using this powerful image of water. He said this, speaking on behalf of God. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. So two sins, forsaking the true God of living water and digging out cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And we do the latter when in our fear we seek to find our own source of water. And I think that's an interesting question for us. You know, in our neediness, and, and not just with the coronavirus, but in all our neediness, where do we find our water? What cisterns do we try and draw from? You know, we have some extraordinary weeks and months ahead for us. First, as we rebuild East Nashville, but second, as we respond to the coronavirus. You know, who knows what next week or next month is going to bring. And I will say that we as a church have a lot of work to do. You know, if the church is the church, then the church will make a profound witness to the world in times like this as we reach out and love our neighbor. And part of our work is to discern what that looks like. What is God calling us to do in these extraordinary times? But putting that to the side for a moment, we need to acknowledge that in these coming weeks, we're going to have fear. We're going to have needs. And at times, we're going to feel powerless. And we need to remember during these times that our God is a God of yes. And that God will be with us through all this, walking with us. Our God, and this is what we need to remember, our God is a God who in the middle of the desert can bring water from a rock. Our God comes to us as a Jewish teacher at a well, promising that we will never thirst again. And so as we remember this during these weeks ahead, what our response needs to be is we need to say with the Samaritan woman, Sir, give me this water. Give me this water that you have and no one else has. Give me this water so that I may never again be thirsty. Amen.